Good morning, church. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We realize we're not the only church probably this weekend in Kerrville who is celebrating the movement of a child from even embryonic stage to graduating senior. We thank you, Father, for uh, the protection of these lives that you have graciously put your hand over that have made it to this, this point of their life. Thank you for allowing us to have any influence on them at all. And we pray, Father, that, that those areas of our life that have not been reflective of Christ are quickly forgotten. And that they see and they remember and they're molded by what, what, what little bit of Christ that they've seen in us. Father, we lift up the Notre Dame Catholic Church who, uh, within it, you promise, have uh, disciples who are following you and are loving to be your Christ in this world, hands in the feet of Jesus. And so, Father, together we pray that we will continue to raise up generations that reflect his light in the world, and not just um, here at the Kerrville Church of Christ, but with every faith family who's endeavoring to do that with your name on it. And we ask us humbly in his name and everyone said. Out of the foyer is the coolest collection of senior tables that I have been a part of here at KCC. If they are any indication of the personalities that our seniors have, they are big personalities. Uh, and they're just fun to have spent some time with this week as, as uh, I've been up and down the halls for different reasons. But one element on one table caught my eye. Because it connects well with, I think, what Ricky asked me to aim my remarks at. It's on Maria Hall's table. Now, she is officially the airhead of the graduating class of 2019. <laughs> and I don't say that as a diss, but as a compliment. Because the girl literally loves to fly. And I think that's amazing. But while I love the pictures of her next to her plane that she's flown in and the clothes that she has flown in, what grabbed my attention most was the empty canvas that adorns her table with these words underneath. I am the canvas, and God's the painter. I hope Maria means that. Because it encourages my heart that we're on the right track with our youth ministry, that we're on the right track with any ministry that we have going on here at the Kerrville Church of Christ. That there would be even one teen that wants to offer their life as a canvas for the great painter God. For the last six years that I've had a chance to be a part of this incredible family, it has been a goal of mine to help us embrace the truth that God has called us to, but in a literary form, not so much as an artistic form, but in literary form, and that is this. God has been writing a tremendous story since the beginning of time, and we've got some of it recorded here. But he has been inviting us to be a part of that story welcoming him to be the author of our story in our lives and to include that in his story. But that is all done by choice. Because honestly, some people want no part of it. This is their life. This is their story, and buddy. They are both author and they are the lead character. Period. It is about them. And during this time of the year especially, it seems like graduation speeches and words that are spoken tend to underscore that type of thinking. 
God can be the resource provider if he wants to, but please don't ask to be the author and please don't get in the way of my dreams, my goals, my aspirations. Now, if all that sounds like something you'd hear at graduation sometime, it's because it's graduation time. And we're going to hear things like, be the best you can be. Don't be afraid of failure. Be the change you hope to see in the world. The future is yours to shape. And I love this one. Live your life. Well, I don't have any sage advice this morning for our seniors this Sunday, but I do have a yes or no question that I hope stays with you. Here's the question. Since Jesus Christ sacrificed to love you, will you sacrifice to love those God places in front of you? That's my question. Yes or no? It's a simple request, but I know it's a difficult answer. And one that I hope you don't answer too quickly. It's a question that isn't original with me because Jesus asked it during the last week of his life. It had been a busy week. He took a donkey that didn't belong to him to ride into Jerusalem. He chased some merchants out of the temple he believed had no business being there. He cursed the fig tree not bearing fruit. And now he was at the back part of the temple and the chief priests had him cornered there and they demanded, who do you think you are? That you have the authority to do what you've done here this week. And in typical rabbinic form, Jesus answers their question with a question. Which he was fond of doing quite often. Because giving people straight answers rarely stays with them. Most of you who are educators realize it's the discovering of those answers to your own questions that often stays with you longer. And so he answers their question with a question from a story. It's the yes and no brother story. Or at least I've most often heard them referred to as the brothers. In Matthew's Greek, they're actually just two children, old enough to work in the family vineyard. But they're working under dad's supervision. And it goes something like this. Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. Will you go work in my vineyard today? Yes, sir, I will, he said. But he didn't go. Which of the two, Jesus asked, did what the father wanted? The answer is pretty simple. Even for those of you graduates who are worn out with taking tests, why is he doing that today? Well, because there's no studying required for this one. The first brother gets it right. We know that. He did what the father wanted. And the religious leaders get it right, too. Uh, The first, they said. But instead of a pat on the head for the right answer, Jesus rebukes them for wrong actions. He says, yes, uh, the answer is correct, but I tell you, That crooks and prostitutes are going to precede you into God's kingdom. You see, John the Baptist came to you showing the right road. But you turned your noses up at him. But the crooks and the prostitutes, they believed him. Even when you saw their changed lives, you didn't care enough to change and believe him along with them. 
For the yes and no brothers, it is ultimately what the boy said. No, because we do that. It's not what the boy said. It's what the boy did that matters most. But pointing that out isn't what got Jesus killed. What got Jesus killed was the fact that he said the chief priests and the elders were the second brother. That's what got him killed. They were the yes men. They said all the right things. They believed all the right things. But they didn't take God seriously enough to do the things he'd asked them to do. They thought they were doing the right things, going to godly places and reading godly words and publishing and distributing those godly words, even hearing sermons on graduate Sunday words. But they didn't do the godlike things they saw Jesus, God in the midst of them, doing. They'd become so attached to their ideas of a godly religion that there was no room to accept correction. John the Baptist came and then Jesus comes suggesting that, that maybe their religious experience needs an upgrade, an update, something brand new. But they like the old ways better. And so Jesus makes it clear that the people they despised were going to be in the kingdom ahead of them. Not instead of them, but ahead of them. Even though they carried uglier sin labels than they did. Labels like crooks. Labels like prostitutes. People who had obviously said no to God at the beginning. But who were saying yes to God now. Jesus contrasts them to those who said, yes, we will. We will be like God. Yes, we will serve God. But then went and lived like the devil. Now if that sounds like hypocrisy, it is. And it's been the largest condemnation leveled at any religious people in any age. That we say one thing and we promise one thing and then we do another. Promising we will love each other and the world on Sunday. And then finding a dozen ways to slander and cheat or just plain ignore one another come Monday. I'm not talking about the occasional under-delivering of something that we promise. I'm talking about promising, I'll go. I'll work, I'll serve, and then not even twitching a muscle to get out of the chair. I've done that on Monday with my wife, and I've done that on Monday with my kids, and I've done that on Monday with my staff, and people I meet at the Dairy Queen. When Greg was living here, I don't go there now. How is that possible? Here's at least, I think, part of the answer is we have great imaginations. That we believe we've done things we really have only thought about doing. You've thought about visiting someone. You've thought about taking something to someone or doing something for someone that you knew they were in need of. And you put it on a list and maybe you even prayed about it. Maybe you even rehearsed what you were going to say or got out the tools to go do what you were going to do. I did that a couple of weeks ago. A young man called our church asking for some help with some funds. They'd had a child prematurely, and the extra expense of the hospital bills, they just didn't have in their budget to cover, and they needed some help with their rent and some food because it all had set them back just a little bit. They needed help. Well, by God's grace, you supplied the money to them. I just delivered it. 
But then I felt the nudge of the Spirit to do more. I felt the follow-up request of the Father to go back into the vineyard and do some more work for him, to take a bag of jerky, and to meet the guy before he went to work over in Fredericksburg, and to ask him how the preemie was doing, how his family was doing. Do they have extra family here? Do they need a family to help them raise that, that little girl? Then other things were given time that I had said yes to on other occasions. And the next thing I knew, I was writing that whole experience off. And I didn't do anything. I just wrote it off as it was, wasn't meant to be. Sometimes I even congratulate myself for just thinking about it. Maybe even praying about it. But doing nothing with it. Nothing with it. Man, I hope I'm not the only one who does that. It's easy to get beliefs mixed up with actions. You see, right now, in this room right here, at least five to ten people believe that they love their families and yet they're not spending near enough time with them. And they know it. In this room, there's 20 people who believe in reaching out to those who don't know Jesus, who are lost. But it's been six months and we've not prayed for that lost person or any lost person or sought to engage them in a meal or a cup of coffee. And we haven't listened to their story, let alone told them how Jesus has impacted our story. They can envision it. They can feel moved about it occasionally, but do nothing. There's at least 30 people in this room who know sex before marriage is damaging long-term to a human being. It's the only reason why God would say, save it for that covenant marriage bed. But there are parents who will allow their teens to be, teens to be in situations to try and handle the purity issue on their own when as adults or even as teens themselves, they didn't do well at all. It's an odd thing, this vacuum between what we believe and what we actually do. The theological word for it is small, three letters, S-I-N. The Greek word for it is to miss the mark. Sounds almost harmless. Sounds almost tolerable until you hear James, the brother of Jesus, say this. He who knows to do good and doesn't do it, you're sinning. Sounds unacceptable, doesn't it? It's because it is. Yes, on some level, it's inevitable. On every level, it's absolutely forgivable. But for those who love God and, are, and have pledged to care for those He created like He would, it is never tolerable. Never. It tears us up when we say one thing and we do another. Literally, it tears up our families. It tears up our friendships. It tears up our communities. It can tear up a church. When we say love and practice indifference. When we say truth matters but live a lie. When we say we believe but we are so different about what we practice. Hear me clearly, there is no religious ritual you can take part in to cover that. No communion you can take, no baptism you can immerse yourself in. That is as significant to God as a visit to a sick friend. 
or a well dug for those who need clean drinking water. If you don't believe that, reread Matthew 25. That's your homework for this week. Jesus says it will be on the final when we stand before him. One of the most haunting lines in any literature anywhere comes from the book Out of Africa. In it, Isaac Dennison tells the story of a young Kikuyu boy by the name of Katow. Now you try saying that one sentence right there, all right? Katow one day appeared at her door in Nairobi and asked if he might work for her. She said yes. And the boy turned out to be a, an incredible servant, great servant, fine servant. But after three months, he came to her again and asked for a letter of recommendation to Sheikh Ali bin Salim, a Muslim, in Mombasa. Well, that upset her because the thought of losing him upset her so she offered to raise Katow's pay but he was firm about leaving he said he had decided he would become either a Christian or a Muslim he explained and his whole purpose in coming to live with her had been to see the ways and habits of a Christian up close in person next he would go and live for three months with Sheikh Ali to see how Muslims believed and then make up his mind and the stunned Denison wrote, Good gracious, Katow, you might have told me that when you came here. God doesn't tell us ahead of time much, does he? Or maybe more to the point, God has been telling us all along, if we would just listen. See, there's no shortage of people who say, Yes, I believe Jesus loves us. Or say that they would love to have some of that love. Or even that they would love like he loves. There's always been plenty of people who in this world say that they would like to be different. That they would like to be better. That they would like to be like Jesus. But Soren Kierkegaard nails it when he says what Jesus is interested in is not so much admirers but followers. What God is short of are people who allow him to paint his story on their personal canvas. It's a sacrificial love story that he wants to paint on your canvas. It's a sacrificial love story he wants to write in your novel. A sacrificial love that's aimed at loving people like he loved you. Even when it means threatening your comfort zone of belief. So, whether we say yes or no to him is apparently less important than what we say with our lives. The important thing is what we say with our lives. And you know what? I believe that they are as easy to read and come to a conclusion about as the yes-no brother story. And so if you wonder which one you are, I want to invite you to look in any mirror and answer this question. What's moving? Your mouth or your feet? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we want to be more than people that have godly mouths, godly thoughts, have godly bumper stickers and godly pictures and can do a godly graduation table. 
we, we want to come as weak as we are and as broken as we are to say, could you use this, this canvas? Could you, could you use this chapter to write what you want to reach people like you've reached us? And we just come confessing that some days we, we talk a much better game than we ever live. And we could come every Sunday, and we do, saying, we didn't do so well in some areas this week, but God, we, we come today saying, we want to say yes to you, the great painter, yes to you, the great author, in a way that maybe we haven't been as ready to say as we have now. And if this week we have lived something different, we want to say, would you forgive us? We claim the forgiveness that comes in the blood of Christ. But Holy Spirit, we're inviting you. Renew us, refocus us, reshape us, remold us to leave here in love better. We say yes. And we want even more to live yes. In Christ's name and everyone said. I'm going to invite you this morning that if you need someone to wrap their arms around you to walk through whatever God's asking you to walk through. We want to, um, to wrap our arms around you to pray over that. If you're here this morning and, you, and maybe right now is the first time you've ever decided, you know, I've, I've been meaning to say yes and put Christ on in baptism and start that walk with him, and I want to do that today, I'm going to be down front. Come find me while we stay in church and while we stay.